0: Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of January 12th, 2023, as always from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And I would like to start by bringing to your attention a call for solidarity actions with anti war activists in Russia, which has been issued by an entity calling itself the Russian Socialist Movement, online at the website anticapitalistresistance.org, specifically asking for such mobilizations in their support. For January 19th, next week, I will read the text of their call. Call for Solidarity Actions with Anti-War Activists in Russia. For over a decade, Russian anti-fascists have commemorated January 19th as their Day of Solidarity. This is the day when, in 2009, in the center of Moscow, the human rights and leftist activist Stanislav Markalov and the journalist and anarchist Anastasia Baburova, were gunned down by neo Nazis. The murder of Markolov and Baburova became the culmination of the ultra right terror of the 2000s, which killed hundreds of migrants and dozens of anti fascists. For many years, while it was still possible, Russian activists held anti fascist demonstrations and rallies on January 19th under the slogan, to remember is to fight. Today, when the Putin regime has invaded Ukraine and unleashed unprecedented repression against its own citizens who oppose the war, the date of January 19th takes on new meaning. Back then, the danger was posed by neo-Nazi groups, often acting with the connivance of the authorities. Today, the ideology and practice of right-wing radicals have become the ideology and practice of the Russian regime itself, which is rapidly turning fascist over the course of its invasion of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin is waging war not only against the Ukrainian people, but also against the Russian civil society resisting aggression. The brutal repressions hit, among other things, the left-wing movement, Socialists, anarchists, feminists, labor unionists. Before the new year, the most famous left wing politician in Russia, the democratic socialist Mikhail Lobanov, was arrested and beaten. The platform he created united the anti war opposition in the municipal elections in Moscow in September 2022. Kirill Ukrainsev, the leader of the Courier labor union, and a well-known left-wing video blogger, has been in custody since April. The reason for the arrest was the protests and strikes the couriers organized as they sought to improve their working conditions. A feminist, artist, and anti-war activist, Alexandra Skochelenko, who distributed anti-war symbols, faces a long prison term. Six anarchists, I'm not going to read their names, forgive me, I'm already struggling with the pronunciation, <coughs> were arrested in the so-called Tumen case, named for the Siberian city of that name. They were brutally tortured, seeking confessions for the preparation of sabotage. Daria Poliodova, an activist of the left resistance group, was recently sentenced to nine years in prison for calls to extremism, quote-unquote, leftist journalist Igor Kuznetsov has been in prison for a year now, accused of extremism for his anti-war and anti-Putin views. This is a far from exhaustive list of Russian leftists recently imprisoned or persecuted for their beliefs as activists forced to leave Russia for political reasons. We ask our foreign comrades and all those who care to support the anti-fascist action on January 19th under the slogans No to Putin's war, fascism, and dictatorship. Freedom to all Russian political prisoners. Solidarity with Russian anti-fascists. To remember is to fight. Signed, the Russian Socialist Movement. Okay, Anastasia Baburova and Stanislav Markolov, the two killed on January 19th, 2009, were documenting human rights abuses in Chechnya, which is evidently what marked them for death, and itself raises questions about connivance by the authorities in their assassination. Although two militants with the Russian National Union ultra-right group were charged and convicted in the double murder. But that was ten years ago. Things have gotten much worse in Russia since then. The Russian National Union, per se, seems to have been disbanded, but similar groups like the Russian Imperial Movement and Rusik are actively collaborating with the Putin regime, which now openly embraces their ideology. We should say a few words more about Alexandra Skochelenko, whose case we have been following. The street protest that broke out across Russia upon the invasion of Ukraine in late March subsided in April in the face of overwhelming repression, but anarchist-spirited anti-war reality hackers continued to find creative ways to get around Putin's draconian law banning all protest and dissent. One group, Feminist Anti-War Resistance, started stealthily replacing price tags on supermarket shelves with messages about Russian atrocities in Ukraine. Alexandra Skochilenko was arrested in connection with such activity in St. Petersburg, and faces up to 10 years in prison for Discrediting the Russian armed forces. So, these are our natural allies in Russia, right? Anti war protesters, human rights defenders, socialists, anarchists, feminists, dissident artists, people who are heroically putting everything on the line to oppose a criminal regime. So, you'd think. The anti-war leadership here in New York and the United States would rise to the occasion and organize a solidarity rally in their support, right? But instead, the ANSWER coalition and affiliated anti-war groups so-called, including the United National Anti-War Coalition UNAC, Code Pink, and the People's Forum will, on Saturday, January 14th, be holding a rally in Times Square to protest against U.S. military aid to Ukraine, under the slogans, Peace in Ukraine, Yes, NATO Expansion, No, with the kicker, quote, Honor the anti-war legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., End quote, Whose birthday, of course, is celebrated this weekend, and the webpage from the Answer Coalition announcing the rally also includes the following quotation quote, "The greatest purveyor of violence in the world: my own government, I cannot be silent." end quote: Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr, April 4th, 1967. So, rather than a rally in solidarity with the Russian anti-war opposition, this is essentially a rally in solidarity with Vladimir Putin, the oppressor and persecutor of the Russian anti-war opposition. Now, this is hardly surprising, alas. All of these groups, which unfortunately now constitute the leadership of the so-called anti-war movement here in the United States, ANSWER, UNAC, Code Pink, are part of the long and shameful tradition in the American left, or so-called left, popularly derided as tankies, those who reflexively root for Russian tanks, whether in Hungary in 1956, Czechoslovakia in 1968, or Ukraine today. But it is certainly hideously ironic that they are now peddling this war propaganda, and that's what it is, in the name of the legacy of Martin Luther King. Okay, a group called the Ukraine Socialist Solidarity Campaign has happily put out a statement in reply to this, entitled No exploitation of Dr. MLK Jr. to support war criminal Putin. I will read the brief text. Answer, the People's Forum, and Code Pink try to brand themselves as leftists, yet they parrot Putin's talking point about NATO in a stylish graphic stating, Honor the anti war legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Putin, a racist, misogynist, capitalist, neo-Tsarist authoritarian with elements of fascism, launched the Ukraine invasion with ongoing murder, rape, and torture of Ukrainians, destruction of essential civilian infrastructure, and threats to global food security by saying, quote, Further expansion of the NATO infrastructure and the beginning of a military development in Ukraine's territories are unacceptable for us, actually, end quote. (laughs) A a quote from Putin's speech of February 24th. Answers, Peace in Ukraine webpage is filled with lies, including the well-known whopper that, quote, U.S. slash NATO, end quote, are responsible for genocide in Ukraine, not Putin and the Russian army. This is a popular talking point of Russia perpetrator, not Ukraine victim, shared by the UNAC website that also promotes an MLK week of action under the slogan, Stop Washington's War Moves Against Russia, quote-unquote. UNAC then erases an 11-year national liberation struggle in Syria against the Putin-backed Assad regime by equating it to the Iraq war. No principled activist should work with these groups. They weaponize racial identity and anti-war activism as cover for their propaganda on behalf of Russia. The same state that detained Brittany Griner. And has Wagner Group mercenaries committing atrocities in Mali, Central African Republic, and Libya. One can be confident of what Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would say about having his image exploited by Putin propagandists. Quote, I have unequivocally declared my hatred for this most colossal of all evils, war, and I have condemned. Any organizer of war, regardless of his rank or nationality, end quote left activists in Ukraine, when discussing negotiations, don't simplistically demand peace in Ukraine quote They, following Rev. Dr. M L. K Jr., have clear justice focused demands. These include public, not closed door negotiations demanded by Zelensky and largely endorsed by the Ukrainian left, international accountability for war crimes, full troop withdrawal and reversal of all annexations of Ukrainian territory. Putin propagandists like Answer, UNAC, Code Pink, and the People's Forum, on the other hand, attempt to absolve Russia of blame. Using Reverend Dr. MLK Jr.'s image with peace in Ukraine, quote-unquote, is a facile positioning designed to de the terms justice and accountability. End quote. Thank you, Ukraine Socialist Solidarity Campaign, the text of their statement, No Exploitation of Dr. MLK Jr. to Support War Criminal Putin, I am not sure if they are planning a counter-demonstration to this affair on the 14th or an action in response to the Russian solidarity call, but watch their Facebook page. Once again, Ukraine Socialist Solidarity Campaign. Now, please spare me any bogus denialism about how this is anything other than a pro-Putin propaganda rally. When you make no demands on the invader and aggressor, only on the side that is backing the nation that is being invaded and aggressed upon, this isn't an anti-war rally. This is a pro-Russia rally seeking to bring about only one thing, Ukraine's defeat, which means its destruction as a sovereign entity, and the massacre of at least a proportion of its population. Now, I'm reluctant to yet again shoot down this blame-NATO propaganda, but to briefly reiterate, Ukraine declared its permanent neutrality, quote-unquote, upon independence from the USSR in 1991 one of the first resolutions of the RADA, the new Ukrainian parliament. Under terms of the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, Ukraine surrendered the thousands of nuclear weapons left on its territory after the Soviet collapse, turning them over to Russia in exchange for Moscow's commitment to respect its sovereignty and borders. It was only after the crisis of 2014 when Russia broke the terms of the Budapest Memorandum by unilaterally annexing the Crimean Peninsula and backing a separatist rebellion in Donbass, that Ukraine abandoned its former position of neutrality. It was only in 2019, after five years of Russian illegal de facto control of Donbass and Crimea, that Ukraine enshrined its aspiration to join NATO in its constitution. Before the full-scale invasion of 2022, Ukraine was still years away from joining NATO at best, and one of the conditions for NATO membership is that a candidate country have no outstanding territorial disputes. So the illegal Russian undeclared occupation of Donbass and annexation of Crimea basically constituted a permanent Russian veto, On Ukraine being admitted into NATO. So Russia had already ensured, before launching the full-scale invasion last March, that Ukrainian intervention into NATO would be indefinitely suspended. If the invasion was aimed at halting the expansion of NATO, it was completely counterproductive, as was easily anticipated. It has only escalated Western military aid to Ukraine, As well as prompting previously neutral Sweden and Finland to join the alliance. And if the invasion was aimed at halting the expansion of NATO, Russia wouldn't be massacring and deporting the populations of occupied areas. And Russian state media would not be relentlessly spewing this exterminationist propaganda, essentially calling for the genocide of the Ukrainian people, which we have documented repeatedly. We will also point out again that Russia's own military alliance, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, CSTO, has long half-encircled Ukraine. Russia to the east, Belarus to the north. Yet we're supposed to be only concerned for Russian security, not for Ukraine's. Why? Why? because Russia has the resources to fuck shit up and threaten world peace, as it is called, with ever less reason. This is the politics of might makes right, and is antithetical to everything that Martin Luther King stood for. And you can be 100% certain that there will not be a word At this bogus anti war rally of support or encouragement for the persecuted anti war activists in Russia who were courageously opposing Putin's criminal war, just as MLK courageously opposed that of LBJ. Now, in 1967, when the U.S. was carpet bombing Vietnam and Laos, it was an irrefutable and self evident statement that the greatest purveyor of violence in the world was the United States. You might note that the world power at this moment that is massively bombing civilian populations and destroying cities is Russia in Ukraine. Now, that quote is from Dr. King's classic speech, Beyond Vietnam, a time to break the silence, sometimes referred to as the Declaration of Independence from the War in Vietnam, delivered on April fourth nineteen sixty seven one year to the day before his assassination at Riverside Church here in Manhattan, we should note that making this speech was a politically dangerous move for King. That risked squandering the political capital he had worked hard for years to build up with the Johnson White House, and which was immediately condemned in the editorial pages of the New York Times and Washington Post. Now, let's turn our attention to his actual words in that speech a little more deeply and flesh out the context a little. I will condense his words slightly for length without changing the meaning or content. He prefaces his protest of the U.S. war effort by disavowing any, quote, attempt to overlook the ambiguity of the total situation or to make North Vietnam or the National Liberation Front paragons of virtue, end quote. He then goes on to say, quote, Tonight, however, I wish not to speak with Hanoi and the NLF, but rather to my fellow Americans who, with me, bear the greatest responsibility in ending a conflict that has exacted a heavy price on both continents." End quote. Okay, so here we have the principle, explicitly stated, of addressing one's demands to the party most responsible for the violence. This is not the vulgar Chomsky rule, which holds that we can never protest any government other than our own, or its immediate proxies and allies, which has morally corrosive effects that we have discussed before. On the contrary, King is, in these words, articulating a morally precise position of identifying the party most responsible for the violence when formulating your demands. He goes on to list his reasons for, quote, bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. One reason grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North. Over the last three years, especially the last three summers, as I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But, they asked, What about Vietnam? They asked if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly To the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. So, another principle, both ethical and tactical, that you have to have the moral credibility of a consistent stance in order to be effective. Again, in contrast to those today like Answer and UNAC, who would Exonerate Putin in Ukraine, just as the more domesticated civil rights leadership of King's own day would exonerate LBJ in Vietnam. Now, I strongly agree with King that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. And I strongly believe in giving peace every possible chance in order to maintain the moral high ground. But I will deny nobody the right to self-defense by any means necessary, and neither did Dr. King. Now, let's take a look at the essay in which King condemned any organizer of war, regardless of his rank or nationality. This was His essay, The Social Organization of Nonviolence, 1959, which was an answer to the more militant North Carolina NAACP leader Robert F. Williams, who advocated armed resistance to racist terror, author, famously, of the book and manifesto Negroes with Guns. Who accused King of hypocrisy for failing to protest U.S war preparations and nuclear stockpiling? And King replied quote, "I am reluctant to inject a personal defense against charges by Mr. Williams, that I am inconsistent in my struggle against war. Merely to set the record straight, may I state that repeatedly in public addresses and in my writings, I have unequivocally declared my hatred. For this most colossal of all evils, and that I have condemned any organizer of war, regardless of his rank or nationality. I have signed numerous statements with other Americans condemning nuclear testing and have authorized publication of my name in advertisements against nuclear testing, appearing in the largest circulation newspapers in the country, without concern that it was then unpopular to so speak out, end quote. But was King, in the final analysis, an absolute pacifist? I mean, putting aside the cynical, double-standard pseudo-pacifism of those who would now invoke his name, i.e. answer and UNAC, are we certain that King would oppose U.S. military aid to Ukraine in its current struggle for national survival. Or, to formulate the question more usefully, is it incumbent upon those in the actual spirit and tradition of King today to oppose U.S. military aid to Ukraine? Let's return to his own words. In that same essay, The Social Organization of Nonviolence, while disavowing, quote, advocacy of violence as a tool of advancement organized as in warfare deliberately and consciously end quote. he also states quote the principle of self defense even involving weapons and bloodshed has never been condemned even by gandhi who sanctioned it for those unable to master Pure nonviolence. End quote. And this passage is footnoted to Mohandas Gandhi's August 1920 essay, The Doctrine of the Sword, in which he wrote, quote, I do believe that where there is only a choice between cowardice and violence, I would advise violence. I would rather have India resort to arms in order to defend her honor than that she should in cowardly manner become or remain a helpless victim to her own dishonor, End quote. Now, bringing this down to um, the brass tacks of actual real-world application, King also writes in that same essay a reply to the cowardly moderates in the white establishment of his own day, who urged a compromise on the question of racial justice in the United States, in which there would be, quote, merely token integration for a long period to come, end quote. He reminded such people, quote, the Negro was the tragic victim of another compromise in 1878, when his full equality... Was bargained away by the federal government, and a condition somewhat above slave status, but short of genuine citizenship, became his social and political existence for nearly a century. Quote. This is a reference to the Compromise of 1877, in which the disputed outcome of the previous year's presidential election was resolved in favor of the Republican, Rutherford B. Hayes, and to placate Southern Democrats, Republicans agreed to withdraw the remaining federal soldiers from the South, effectively ending the era of Reconstruction and allowing the restoration of white supremacy in the South. The Jim Crow system, enforced by the terror of the Ku Klux Klan and supremacist militia, such as the White League. Now, please note here that King is decrying the removal of U.S. military troops from occupied territory in Dixie, and recognizing that this constituted a retrogression and a betrayal, that it was the armed might of the Union Army that was holding in check the armed might of the Klan and the White League, and allowing a situation where for some ten years after the end of the Civil War, black folk in the South could exercise political power and hold public office, which of course became unheard of in the subsequent backlash after the troops were removed. Now, when it came to the conflict of his own time, Where did King stand on this question? He certainly repeatedly acknowledged the evil of fascism in Beyond Vietnam. He even compared U.S. practices in Vietnam to German conduct in World War II. And in his 1958 essay, My Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, He writes that before his conversion to nonviolence, I felt that while war could never be a positive or absolute good, it could serve as a negative good in the sense of preventing the spread and growth of an evil force. War, horrible as it is, might be preferable to surrender to a totalitarian system, Nazi, fascist, or communist end quote, so this sort of implies that after his conversion to nonviolence, he no longer felt that war or armed force could even be a negative good, although he doesn't explicitly say so in so many words. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and broach a somewhat controversial question. It has been pointed out before that MLK's nonviolence was tactical, and King certainly didn't deny this. He was a master tactician, obviously, and the moral dimension of his nonviolence was certainly very clear, but was it absolute? A case can be made that his nonviolence was aimed at seizing the moral high ground so as to win public opinion and ultimately federal power over to the side of the civil rights movement to tip the balance of what the British Marxist writer E.P. Thompson has termed the moral economy in favor of his struggle. And it was because the moral economy had already shifted to a degree that the 1896 Supreme Court decision Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned in Brown versus Board of Education 1954 and it was due to King's ongoing agitation that the Brown decision was actually enforced all too slowly over the next several years but ultimately it was the armed might of the federal state in the form of federalized National Guard, and even active-duty army troops that enforced school desegregation in Arkansas in 1957 and Alabama in 1963. Now, in this essay, My Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, King implies, at least, that nonviolent resistance was possible even in the context of classical European fascism. And indeed, there was nonviolent resistance to the Nazis, even within Germany, such as the famous White Rose group, who paid with their lives in 1943 merely for distributing leaflets calling for passive resistance to the Nazi state. And it does not detract from the selfless courage and sacrifice of the White Rose to note. That it was ultimately armed power that destroyed the Nazi state. And I don't think I am out of place in saying that King, in this essay, invoked nonviolent resistance, even to European fascism, for tactical reasons in his own political context of 1958. He obviously recognized the right and wrong of World War II. All right, and now let's talk about the whole question of right and wrong in war, and particularly the right and wrong of the current war in Ukraine. The tankies, of course, have been avidly exploiting every account of rights abuses by the Ukrainians. The odious Max Blumenthal in Grey Zone has a piece that has been getting much online circulation entitled Zelensky oversees campaign of assassination, kidnapping, and torture of political opposition, end quote. Now, let's put aside for a moment the hypocrisy, the fact that these same tanky voices have nothing to say about the far greater atrocities, the wholesale massacres being committed by the Russian side, other than to engage in contemptible conspiracy theorizing about how they aren't really happening, or are false flags carried out by the Ukrainians themselves to gain world sympathy. The same shit we've been hearing from this crew for years and years, from the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia, to the serial Assad regime chemical attacks in Syria, and now to the massacres in Bukha and Izium. But let's examine their claims on their merits. Here's a quote from the piece. Quote, Western media has looked the other way as Zelensky and top officials in his administration have sanctioned a campaign of kidnapping, torture, and assassination of local Ukrainian lawmakers accused of collaborating with Russia. Several mayors and other Ukrainian officials have been killed since the outbreak of the war many reportedly by Ukrainian state agents after engaging in de-escalation talks with Russia, end quote. There actually isn't anything in the text about Zelensky himself sanctioning kidnapping, torture, or assassination, although one of his advisors, one Anton Garoshenko, is quoted saying, quote, there is one less traitor in Ukraine, unquote, In response to the murder of, quote, a Ukrainian mayor accused of collaborating with Russia, end quote, as Max Blumenthal puts it. But these so called mayors and lawmakers were officials of the breakaway Donbass separatist enclaves who were actively collaborating with the Russian occupation that is now carrying out acts of genocide in Ukrainian territory. Now, I will leave it to Amnesty International and the International Criminal Court to investigate such cases and determine if the laws of war were violated. But for the moment, I will point out that nobody today has any problem with the assassination of the SS General Reinhard Heydrich by the Czech resistance in Prague in June 1942. Now, were these officials assassinated in Donbass? on the same level of evil as Heydrich, one of the architects of the Final Solution, that is certainly very doubtful, acknowledged. But I nonetheless put forth this analogy for consideration, and trust that the International Criminal Court will also examine the rather critical context for these apparent assassinations that Grayzone and Max Blumenthal blithely overlook But the greater point here is that fucked-up shit happens in war. War is a dirty business. That's why we seek to avoid it. We could cite a long litany of massive atrocities committed by the Allies in the Second World War, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki being but the most glaring, yet With the exception of a small handful of hardcore pacifists and anarchists, the left and progressive forces around the world overwhelmingly saw the need to support the Allies and their war effort. Poland, when it was invaded by the Nazis in September 1939, was not exactly a democracy, still a fairly authoritarian state following the quasi-dictatorship, of Joseph Piłsudski, and still largely dominated by his colonels. Yet nobody equivocates today about Poland having been the victim of criminal aggression in 1939, except the most blatant neo-Nazis. And in that critical prelude to World War II, the Spanish Civil War, the Spanish Republic, in the midst of its struggle for survival against the Axis-backed forces of Francisco Franco and his fellow generals, diverted troops and resources from the war to carry out a white terror in Catalonia in 1937, putting down the anarchists and other revolutionary forces that had seized power there. The Spanish Republic also failed to even consider allowing the independence of Spanish Morocco, even as this territory was being used as a staging ground by Franco and his collaborators, who would have been undermined by a pro-independence revolt there. And I'll point out that my own anarchist pals in Catalonia definitely committed excesses, particularly in their anti-clerical persecutions and firebombing of churches. In Vietnam, the communists persecuted the Montagnards, the indigenous peoples of the interior highlands seeing their distinct ethnic identity as a threat to national unity, and Laotian communists treated the Hmong indigenous highland people the same way, which in both cases proved to be a tactical disaster, apart from the inherent right and wrong of it, allowing the Hmong and Montagnards to be groomed by the CIA as an anti communist proxy force. The Sandinistas in Nicaragua in the 1980s committed exactly the same error with the mosquito indigenous population of the Caribbean coast. Yet no progressive today will equivocate on the reality that despite the complexities and contradictions, it was necessary to support the anti fascist forces in Spain, the national liberation struggles in Vietnam and Laos, and the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua. So please spare us the dishonest exploitation of the real or perceived abuses by the Ukrainian side in the current war. I will briefly quote from George Orwell's 1942 essay, Looking Back on the Spanish War, we should briefly remind listeners that Orwell fought the fascists on the Aragon Front in 1936 and 37 as a member of one of the Catalan revolutionary militias, and then wound up fighting on the side of the revolutionary forces in Catalonia against the Spanish Republic in the street fighting that broke out in Barcelona in May 1937 as Madrid moved to put down the revolutionary movement there, all vividly described in the book Homage to Catalonia. So Orwell, of all people, was well aware of the moral complexities of the Spanish Civil War, yet he wrote in that 1942 essay, quote, When one thinks of the cruelty, squalor, and futility of war, and in this particular case of the intrigues, the persecutions, the lies, and the misunderstandings, there is always the temptation to say... "...one side is as bad as the other. I'm neutral. In practice, however, one cannot be neutral, and there is hardly such a thing as a war in which it makes no difference who wins. Nearly always, one side stands more or less for progress, the other more or less for reaction." End quote. Now, there have been exceptions to this principle, arguably, It was hard to identify the good guys in World War I, and I certainly took a neither-nor position in the Cold War, in which the democratic West was backing right-wing dictatorships around the planet, while the totalitarian East was backing national liberation struggles in the Third World, both in completely two-faced manner. But it is impossible not to take sides in Ukraine in 2023, just as it was impossible not to take sides in Spain in 1936 or Poland in 1939. I just received in the mail a copy of the book, Ukraine, Voices of Resistance and Solidarity, published by Resistance Books in London. And the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign, an anthology of statements and brief essays from the Ukrainian left opposition, socialists, trade unionists, feminists, all speaking in support of the country's armed resistance against Russia and full recovery of territory, while also pushing for social justice demands such as debt forgiveness for Ukraine in light of the crisis and there are also a few statements in their support from voices outside of Ukraine, principally in the United Kingdom, I'm going to read some excerpts from the contribution by Taras Bilyas, a member of the democratic socialist group Sozialny Ruk, or social movement, who is now serving with a unit of the Ukrainian National Guard. Quote, I'm a Ukrainian socialist. Here's why I resist the Russian invasion. I'm writing from Ukraine, where I serve in the Territorial Defense Forces. A year ago, I couldn't have expected to be in this situation. Like millions of Ukrainians, my life has been upturned by the chaos of war. Over the past four months, I have had the opportunity to meet people Whom I would hardly have met under other circumstances. Some of them had never thought of taking up arms before February 24th, but the Russian invasion forced them to drop everything and go to protect their families. We often criticize the actions of the Ukrainian government and the way the defense is organized, but we do not question the necessity of resistance and understand well why and for what we are fighting. At the same time, during these months, I've tried to follow and participate in the discussions of the international left about the Russian-Ukrainian war. The main thing that I now feel from these discussions is fatigue and disappointment. Too much time being forced to rebut obviously false Russian propaganda. Too much time explaining why Moscow had no legitimate security concerns to justify war, too much time asserting the basic premises of self-determination that any leftist should already agree with. Perhaps the most striking thing about many of these debates is the ignoring of the opinion of Ukrainians. Ukrainians are still often presented in some left-wing discussions either as passive victims who should be sympathized with, or as Nazis who should be condemned. But the far-right makes up a clear minority of the Ukrainian resistance, while the absolute majority of Ukrainians support the resistance and do not want to be just passive victims. Zelensky's government, of course, is neoliberal, Ukrainian leftists and trade unionists have organized extensively against his social and economic policies. However, in terms of war and nationalism, Zelensky is the most moderate politician who could have come to power in Ukraine after the 2014 annexation of Crimea and the start of the war in Donbass. The decision to oppose the Russian occupation was not made by Joe Biden, nor by Zelensky, but by the Ukrainian people who rose up en masse in the first days of the invasion and lined up for weapons. Had Zelensky capitulated then, he would only have been discredited in the eyes of most of society. But the resistance would have continued in a different form, led by hardline nationalist forces. To put it in historical terms, the war in Ukraine is no more a proxy war than the Vietnam War was a proxy war between the United States on one side and the Soviet Union and China on the other. And yet at the same time, it was also a national liberation war of the Vietnamese people against the United States, as well as a civil war between supporters of North and South Vietnam Almost every war is multi-layered. But what does this give us in practical terms? During the Cold War, internationalists did not need to laud the USSR to support the Vietnamese struggle against the United States, and it is unlikely that any socialist would have advised left-wing dissidents in the Soviet Union to oppose support for the Viet Cong. Should Soviet military support for Vietnam have been resisted because the USSR criminally suppressed the Prague Spring of 1968? Why then, when it comes to Western support for Ukraine, are the murderous occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq considered serious counter-arguments to supplying aid? Instead of seeing the world as being composed solely of Geopolitical camps. Socialist internationalists must evaluate every conflict based on the interests of working people and their struggle for freedom and equality. Vietnam's struggle did not just benefit Vietnam. The defeat of the United States there had a significant, if temporary, deterrent effect on American imperialism. The same is true with Ukraine. What will Russia do? If Ukraine is defeated, what would prevent Putin from conquering Moldova or other post-Soviet states? U.S. hegemony has had terrible consequences for humanity, and it's thankfully now in decline. However, an end of U.S. supremacy can mean either a transition to a more democratic and just international order, or a war of all against all. It can also mean a return to the policy of imperialist spheres of influence and the military redrawing borders, as in previous centuries. The world will become even more unjust and dangerous if non-Western imperialist predators take advantage of American decline to normalize their aggressive policies. Ukraine and Syria are examples of what a Multipolar world will be like if the appetites of non Western imperialisms are not reduced. The longer this horrible conflict in Ukraine goes on, the more popular discontent in Western countries could grow as a result of the economic difficulties caused by the war and sanctions. Capital, which does not like the loss of profits and wants to return to business as usual, May try to exploit the situation. It can also be used by right wing populists who do not mind sharing spheres of influence with Putin. But for socialists to use this discontent to demand less aid to Ukraine and less pressure on Russia would be a rejection of solidarity with the oppressed. End quote. Thank you, Taras Bilius of Sotsyalny Ruk, his essay, slightly condensed, in the new anthology, Ukraine, Voices of Resistance and Solidarity, available from Resistance Books in London and the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign. And I will close with a few final words to any absolute pacifists who may be listening to this. I do not share your position. But I do respect it. And I'll point out that there has been nonviolent resistance in Ukraine. In the city of Kherson, which was liberated by Ukrainian forces in November, back when it was first taken by the Russians in March, the populace repeatedly took to the streets en masse, unarmed, and flew the Ukrainian flag in defiance of the occupation troops and the Russian declared curfew. And if your pacifism is to have any legitimacy, it must be the courageous pacifism of the unarmed protesters in Kherson who stood up to Russian occupation troops, not the cowardly, deluded, pseudo-pacifism of the tankies that abets aggression and occupation and annexation and genocide. And I feel entirely confident in closing with these words. In the spirit of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., stand with the anti war opposition in Russia and with the resistance to Russian aggression in Ukraine. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.